and not letting us out of your hand. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles, we're going to look to not Ecclesiastes, but we're heading to the New Testament book of Matthew, to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. As the word cloud pops up behind me, uh, you'll be reminded that you are in a Bible-believing church, and within a Bible-believing community, the Bible is not just read, it is actually read. Uh, we're going to be reading, and uh, it is the Scripture is inspired uh, it is uh, infallible, it is without errors, all in the originals. And so when you have troubles with what's communicated here, it should be that you, you understand that you're having trouble with what God has revealed to us. Uh, we're going to be looking at the uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 33. I want to just read that one verse a couple times. I'd like it to stick into your mind, uh, which says, But seek first... The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, I'm going to read that one again. I think some of you are familiar with this text. Uh, Jesus was speaking, and uh, this one kind of summarizes some of what he had been saying since verse 25. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Uh, and if I go with you on this and uh, sing it with you, you probably know the words too. It's in your mind. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. You can join me. And all these things will be added unto you. Alleluia, alleluia. I was taking you back to a time when you heard that song, probably when you were uh, at a camp. Uh, maybe you heard it at a church uh, growing up, maybe in Sunday school or Bible school. What does it mean? Seek first the kingdom of God. What does it mean? Uh, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll take the reading of the word, but especially the preaching of the word, and make it an effectual means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If I lift that verse right out of context, you wouldn't realize that what are the all things that he's talking about and what is the kingdom of God? We're going to try to touch on that in the remaining moments that we have. But if you'll follow along with me back in verse 25, I want to put this verse in context. Jesus is preaching on the sermon. Uh, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, it is just outside of Capernaum. Capernaum is a small little town by the Sea of Galilee. It's where Peter had his fishing business. This is done at the early part of Jesus' ministry. How do I know this? Well, I, yes, I know some of that, but I wasn't there when Jesus started his ministry. Uh, how do I know that this was at the beginning of his ministry? Well, because if you look, it's in chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's way at the beginning of the book of Matthew. And Matthew basically does introduce us to Jesus coming to this world. You know, in chapter 1, we get the angels coming to tell Joseph uh, that, that a baby's going to be born, that he shouldn't divorce Mary, that she hasn't been unfaithful, but that what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty cool how you see it all unfolding and get the story a little bit of John the baptizer coming and how all that stuff worked. Uh, and then you finally find that when, um, that when Jesus does come into this world, you have quietness, but then we're introduced to Jesus uh, in the wilderness, and we're introduced to Jesus and, and the, at, at, the, um, uh, at the Jordan River, where he was ordained. 
Uh, and I mean ordained, some of you might say that he was baptized. But when Jesus was commissioned to start ministry, and I believe this was done by John the baptizer, who himself had been ordained six months earlier by his dad, who was a high priest. And so it was a priest ordaining a priest. And John was the newest priest ordaining Jesus to be the great and final high priest. Once you realize that, then once Jesus starts his ministry, we're picking it up in chapter, you know, that was chapter 4. In chapter 5, we get the first speech, the first main uh, presentation that, that uh, Matthew records. And Matthew must have been pretty good at writing because, my goodness, he recorded a long sermon. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is this whole sermon that Jesus was proclaiming as he was gathering his disciples from the region of Capernaum. He was getting them together. He took them out on the hillside where you could overlook the Galilee region. It's quite beautiful even today. There's a couple churches that mark the location, or at least where they believe it took place. But this is where Jesus was teaching. Now, I told you to follow along in chapter 6. The context for Seek ye first the kingdom of God, it starts in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, these are the words of Christ, do not be anxious. Now, that is the core text that helps to explain why you should seek first the kingdom of God. Because he's giving you the antidote to anxiety. Listen to these words. Therefore, Jesus says to the disciples, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than its clothing, its covering? Then verse 26, he, he begins one of two illustrations. Look at the birds. You can look up in the air and see the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father takes care of them. They're not anxious. He says, are you not more valuable than those birds? If you go to verse 27, and which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Or why are you anxious about your clothes? I mean, think about this. Is there another place that says, can you even try to make yourself taller? You know, can you add a cubit to your life if you wanted to? Can you add an hour or a minute or even a second? Some people in this world think that if you take these shots and if you do this and you do that, you can. Be careful, because the principle here is don't be filled with anxiety. He says, consider, verse 28, Why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Look at them. Look at how they grow. And I imagine he's looking at some flowers right there. They don't work. They don't do any special kind of thing. And yet I tell you that even great King Solomon, with, with the golden age of Israel, even Solomon, with all of his glory and all of his wisdom and with all of his, uh, with all of his women, with all of his wealth, with everything that he had, he was not dressed like one of these flowers. Verse 30. If God can take care of, he can close the grass, clothe the grass of the field, which today is alive and to, which tomorrow is thrown into an oven... How much more will he clothe you? And this is where he's getting to the heart of the issue, where the rubber meets the road. O ye with faith that is weak. Verse 31. Therefore, 
Therefore, in light of this, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Uh, now, why do you think that Jesus was saying that? Do you think he was just making it up out of the air? Jesus had already heard these guys say it. If you came to our chosen, the movie on Friday night, uh, we were getting a sampling of what it was like to walk around with the Christ. What was it like to literally be there if you had been Peter, James, and John? If you were walking through Capernaum and you were actually there on the Mount of Olives? You know, when the, when the, when the preaching was over and what was done, what do you think the disciples talked about? How nice their accommodations were? No, they were wondering, what are they going to eat next? They were wondering if they're going to have to raise some money or if they're going to have to cook. Who's going to do the cooking? He says, oh, you of little faith, do not be anxious, verse 31, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you already need them. And then verse 33 is the answer. But you seek the kingdom. Seek it first with priority. And he says, and when you're pursuing this kingdom... You're not going to escape this, this thing that's, that makes the kingdom the kingdom. Righteousness. Some translate it that it's his righteousness, or some translate it its righteousness, that it's the righteousness associated with the kingdom, or it's the righteousness that the king has. But you're supposed to seek first with priority, with urgency, the kingdom of God, with the righteousness that's included in it. And then he says... Those other things, they'll be taken care of. Okay, now that you've already seen the context, what are the other things? When we sing, and all the things, you know, when we're singing that in the song, now we know what the other things are. It's the stuff that you think you need every day of your life. Food, drink, clothing, shelter. We were just talking about the, the need for shelter in Eastern Carolina. You saw some of the pictures when they showed us that video with the water flowing through that it was beautiful water until I saw that it was flowing through their house, through their shelter. Now, that's some of the context. Let me take you to a helicopter view here as we're, we're going to jump into the kingdom talk in a moment. And that is uh, Jesus is actually beginning this talk. Uh, and it goes back to chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. And this is where you get the whole context for this huge speech. Matthew is a detailed guy. He's a Jew. He's been a tax collector. He's been hated by all the Jewish community. But when God called him, and that was part of our, uh, the chosen video this week uh, as we were doing our movie night. When God called Matthew, Matthew left it all and came. But when Matthew recorded the details about Christ in the Bible, he is more, the most diligent to give us the most actual words of the Christ. It's pretty amazing. The three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, in order to understand all of this, I'm going to go ahead and, and do it in three quick points. The first point is I want you to see the presence of the kingdom because you can't seek what doesn't exist. Okay, up to this point in time, a lot of people didn't understand what the kingdom was. So we're going to see the presence of the kingdom. It's actually there. Then secondly, I want to take quickly notice of the power of the kingdom, uh, which is why it's almost like the energy that is inside of this kingdom. And then thirdly, where this text is, is the practices within the kingdom. 
So if you follow along with me very quickly, the presence of the kingdom. Uh, was the kingdom already there when Jesus was speaking? Okay, let me back up for you a little bit even further. What is a kingdom? If you've been blessed to grow up in this country, you probably don't know what a kingdom is. You're probably very happy that you have not had to swear an allegiance to some uh, monarch. I know my mom always had an affiliation or appreciation of an affinity for the monarch in England because uh, my mom's grandparents were born over there in the islands. And uh, so I remember when, when uh, Lady Di and Charles where they were going to get married at, at Westminster Abbey. You know, it was two in the morning, and all of our family was up. We were on vacation, and we had to make sure that we got to watch the monarchy, how it was supposed to extend. But we really, we only look at the monarchy now as uh, we look at the kingdom of England as just a facade. It's just pageantry. Really, it's just a movie that you can take a glimpse of and, and focus on and you can see all their flaws and you can see all their way they spend money. And it sometimes makes people feel good, um, but it's not the typical kingdom talk that, that Jesus is talking about. What about the presence of this kingdom? Okay, if you're turning your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 3, you're going to find that, that John the baptizer was the first one to use this kind of language. Uh, he is in chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. And he said, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I don't know about you, but if you would have, uh, you could have probably smelled John coming before. He was wearing camel skin and he was living out in the wilderness. He was a rough and tough guy for sure. But I'm telling you, God gifted him with this booming voice. He didn't have any amplification and he was able to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And everybody heard him. John was talking about a kingdom. And the people were really stirred up by this because they understood kingdom not as a facade, not as pageantry, but they recognized the Roman Empire as a kingdom. And now there was going to be another kingdom that's to rise against the one that was there. Now, Jesus in chapter 4, right after his temptation, and if you look here in verse uh, 17, after Jesus has gone through the uh, preparation for ministry, the 40... 40 days and all the, all the temptations in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to do the ministry. He began to preach, uh, Matthew 4, 17. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were listening to Jesus, what would you have thought? Hey, there's going to be a new army that's on the rise. We're finally going to get freed from all of this pestilence. We're all of this annoyance from a big brother. It's not a big brother. It is, it is our slave master. And however you want to make comparisons to that today, where you feel like you're, you're being under this, the thumb of some other agency, some other kind of guidance, some kind of authority over you. Well, when Jesus says that repent, you people repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's really neat how he's beginning to open their eyes up to say there's something more. So how do you have a kingdom near? Some translations are trying to say that the kingdom is close, like it's just around the corner. And some want to say that it is so close that it's right here in front of your face. It's quite interesting how you figure this out. I tend to say that the kingdom was coming 
And I believe that the reason I would say that the kingdom was still coming and not that it had come is because if you turn to chapter 5 and you get into the prayer, excuse me, it's actually in chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm going to take you down to verse 10 of chapter 6 where he teaches the disciples to pray and he says, your kingdom come. There's a sense in which the kingdom has not already arrived. Now, some of you may... Uh, as I said, you're, you're processing this. How can you seek first the kingdom of God if it hasn't come, if it's not here? I believe that what was going on here is Jesus was explaining it, and Matthew loved the word king because he presents Jesus as the king throughout the whole book. Matthew does a marvelous job of showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that is worthy. But, but the way that you'll understand it, the kingdom is only in place when there is a king. And now Jesus, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, has come into this world. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the curse of the law. The kingdom is there because the king has finally arrived. But has the king been crowned? And this is one of the things that I believe that Jesus and John were saying correctly. The kingdom is almost here. The presence of the kingdom. If I fast forward a little bit, I'll take you to John chapter, I think I have it on the back of this card, in, in the book of, book of John chapter 18, uh, where you find in verses 33 to 38, Jesus is standing before Pilate three years later. They're standing there, and, and Pilate is about to judge Jesus. He's been just pulled out of the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been kept up all night. He's already been beaten and whipped. He is, he's despised and rejected. He's barely able to stand on his own in a sense, or he, he is going to be even, all, all the punishments are coming for the crucifixion in just a minute when Pilate washes his hands and sends him away. But Pilate enters the headquarters and he looks at Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king? Jesus looked at him and he said, do you say this of your own accord or did others tell you about it? Uh, you know, and Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priest has delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus says, my kingdom. Now notice, he doesn't deny. My kingdom. It's not that it's come, but he says, my kingdom is here, but it's different. My kingdom is not earthly. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and I might not, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So Pilate says to him again, so are you a king? And Jesus said, you have said it. It's really interesting when you realize the presence of this kingdom only comes when Jesus is king. And if I fast forward a little bit further, Jesus is crowned king of kings and lord of lords after he accomplishes what only he could do. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Why? Because according to Philippians chapter 2, it was when, when Jesus had died and was buried and resurrected, and when he ascended on high, that's when the, the authority of the Father came to him and said, he has a name above every name. Everyone will bow to him. And that's why John in chapter Revelation 19, he ends up stating that same thing, that he'll be known as the king 
of kings or the king over kings. In fact, this is what Paul was teaching Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He finishes up the book by saying that we have a sovereign God and Jesus is his name and he is king of kings. You see, the sovereign, the, the kingdom is here in Christ who has now conquered an enemy that no other king could conquer, and that is death. Up from the grave he arose. And with that, he became the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, in our text, we're, we're to seek first this kingdom. Now, the power of this kingdom is a little different from everything else. It's not like this world's. And that's why if you turn to the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of, of the sermon that he preaches, Jesus opens his mouth and he says, this kingdom is upside down because I'm going to bless with my power, with my presence. I'm going to bless the people who are part of my kingdom. And if you look at it there, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. Blessed are the mourners, verse 4. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Verse 6, blessed are those who are thirsting and pursuing righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are the ones who show mercy. Blessed are, in verse 8, blessed are those who have this purity of heart with no agendas. They have no conspiracy. Verse 9, blessed are the ones who pursue peace. Verse 10, and even blessed are the ones who suffer. Who suffer because they're in my kingdom. They're falsely accused. It's really neat. And that's why he says, verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. He says, when you are a part of my kingdom, you are going to see a power that's so different that it's upside down and people think, think it's foolishness. And that's why I'll take you now to the, to the practice of the kingdom. What are we supposed to do? Well, in chapter 6, and if you have it open, I'm not going to be able to go through all of it, but he goes through four main things that is the practice of this kingdom. The first one is about mercy ministry. And he says there in chapter 6, verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable activity before men to be seen by them. So first thing he says, hey, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of me, if you're a part of this kingdom, he says, when you do your good deeds and you help others out, you don't do it to get their praise. You don't do it to be patted on the back. You don't do it for people to give you awards. See, this is, this is upside down for the world. Then he goes on in verse 5. He says, if you're part of this kingdom, you're going to talk to the king directly. And when you pray, you should, you should not be like the fake people, the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and the religious places. Uh, they are on the street corners and everything else, and they are the ones with the microphones standing up in front of everybody making great prayers. That's not the way of the kingdom. And that's why he says, when you do pray, you acknowledge the king. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom is what we want. So cool when you realize that he's showing the practices of, of, of taking care and being charitable, of also of communicating with God. Then he says that, and if you go a little further, he talks about fasting in verse 16. He says, and when you fast, do not be like the phony earthly people that are hypocrites. They have a sad countenance and they disfigure their face and they say, woe is me. They fake it. He says, if you're going to truly fast, if you're going to know what it means to do without something, genuinely, 
It's not just because you're going to do without chocolate for a day, or you're going to put Cokes on the shelf for a week, or you're going to stop eating ice cream and get a little skinnier, or whatever it is that you're going to do without. I remember my son was telling me about a tech fast. Imagine doing without your phones and your computers and your internet for seven days. Will you be better or worse? Some of you are thinking about it. When you fast, don't do it to perform. Do it so that you might be, you know, might, that the distractions of this world might go away and that your intimacy with Christ would be deepened. So those are three of the practices. The fourth one is the living of your life. And that's verse 25 where it kicks in. And he says in chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious and that's when people start to worry. Oh, are we going to make it? Are we going to make the budget? Are we, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to do this? I'm feeling guilty. Maybe I should step away from the pulpit. Have you ever been like that? Is everything just wonderful for you? Are you in heaven already? When you listen to what Jesus is doing with his two true disciples, he's now teaching them, don't get locked in on the things of this earth. They're all temporary. They're not going to last. Let's go talk to uh, Anita and Roger. <laughs> or, the, or the lady that's off-grid. She's trying to hang on to her dolls still. Praise the Lord that this, these, these are things that she's enjoyed, but they, you can't take them with you. And that's why he says, folks, seek first God's kingdom. And now, when you, how do you get this kingdom? And what does this kingdom look like? Well, there's a lot more text I can show you, but this kingdom is unlike anything else. Jesus said it's a kingdom not of this world. If it was of this world, we'd take up weapons and we'd make sure that we weren't just conceal and carry. We would make sure we carry the M16s or whatever they are, AR-14s. You know what I'm talking about. We would be armed to the teeth and we would go to war. Because if the kingdom that we're a part of demands it, we would fight. But Jesus' kingdom is different. Seek his kingdom where he is the king. And there's something different about his kingdom. It's connected to righteousness. Now, is that a big deal to you or not? Let's just skip that word, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Oh, it's easy to skip the righteousness part. What is righteousness? This is where the gospel comes in. How many of you are righteous? Trick question. <laughs> Good answer. In Christ, we have been given a righteousness that is not of our own. You see, the kingdom of God demands faith. Okay? You live in this kingdom, and I can quote Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to worry. I don't have to try to make it all come together. I don't have to plan everything out to the T. What he says is don't be anxious. Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. God's got this. Because what you really need is not something that will just temporarily cover you. You need something that will transform you. You need the righteousness of Christ. 
Now, when Jesus spoke these words at the beginning of his ministry, this is, he's got three years more to preach. He's on the, on the Mount of Trans, excuse me, he's on the Mount there right over the Galilee Sea. And he's beginning to teach them about this kingdom that has a righteousness. Paul explains it even better in chapter 3 of Romans. There is a righteousness apart from law-keeping. There is a, a righteousness that you can have apart from performance. He said, chapter 4, Father Abraham had it. It was a righteousness that was imputed to him. Big fancy word. It was put to his bank account. Basically what it means is when God, the accounter, ends up looking down at you, do you have any righteousness in your account? Abraham had it. He believed God. He trusted in God. And that is exactly what Jesus is giving the gospel at the beginning of his ministry. Folks, seek first this kingdom where you get a righteousness that is from him to you. I've sometimes used the analogy of a, of a, of a, a doctor's coat. And it reminded me when George was serving in, Sunday, or in Bible school and uh, you came over as Dr. George and uh, he was speaking really authoritatively. And you were accurate and all that stuff about how fearfully and wonderfully we're made. But the white coat is a symbol of, you know, that you're a doctor, that you know your stuff. But I like the idea of the white robe that you get in Scripture. We are covered in darkness and sin. Let me tell you, if I looked into the, into the basement of your heart, there would be more than 10 inches of sin and muck. And there would be none of us that could get shovels enough to clear it out. The wages of your sin is death. You are, are weighed down by all of this stuff and you need the righteousness that's a part of Christ's kingdom. His kingdom is out of this world. It's not of this world. When you get that righteousness, then the things of this world are not as serious to you. He'll take care of the food, the drink, the raiment, the shelter, just like he can do it for the birds and the flowers. The righteousness of Christ, how do you get it? How do you get a part of this kingdom? Well, you need to know the king. I'm proclaiming him to you today. John the baptizer with his megaphone voice. Make way, make straight the path. The king is coming. But he uses a little different language. Behold, the lamb, finish it with me. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how King Jesus was introduced. When you get to meet the Lamb of God, Jesse said it so well from John 15, look at the love that he had for you, that while you were yet dead in sins and trespasses, he took your place, he died for you. At the beach I proclaim that we preach a cross that is empty. Jesus doesn't need to be put back up there again and again and again. He died once, the just for the unjust. I'm telling you, he went to the cross to be able to conquer death. And because he was able to conquer death, he died on the cross to pay for our sins, to take the wrath of God due upon our sins. Then he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, he has been given a name above every name, as I've quoted, so that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he welcomes us into his kingdom. Can you get there because you put more money in the offering? I thought there would be a bigger response. 
No. I mean, I'm not going to stop you from putting more money in the offering, but you're not going to get to kingdom status by paying for it. You get it because he gives it to you. He works faith in your heart, and you're able to see him as king, and you're able to see his accomplishment on the cross, not as foolishness, but as the power of God to save you. I'm telling you, once you've been enlisted in the kingdom, it's not a problem to sing, seek ye first the kingdom of God and the way to live in it, the righteous way. It's not so hard.